Welcome to Rock Album Analysts, your weekly podcast where three lifetime friends, rock musicians, and rock fans take an in-depth look at a different rock album each week. This week, this is your host, David Lucarelli. Co-host John Carson. This is Mike Gavigan. And this is Andrew Carter. So there's four of us this week. Yes, and we're happy to have you as a special guest. And this week, we will be taking a look at Animalize. Before we do that, we like to play a track or two or three uh, that we've been involved with just to let you know what we've done or what we've been up to. So, uh, John, what do you want to play? Uh, let's go back to Ballads of Johnny Blowtorch. Apparently, that's actually making some sort of chart movement at this point on some sort of bizarro indie music thing. It's being added to Spotify lists and stuff like that. So... Maybe more people will hear it, it'll go farther up. Fortune's uh, Ghetto Ass Pedal. It's one of those songs that uh, I think could easily fit on a Kiss album of this era. So I said, let's go with that one. It's a good tune. Well, 
let's get right into it. Fresh off the Lick It Up tour uh, in May of 1984, Kiss checks into Right Track Studios. Uh, Michael James Jackson produces the drum tracks. And then Paul Stanley takes over production for Animalize, certainly the band's most energetic and possibly most heavy metal-like album of their career, at least up until that point. So first track, I've Had Enough. Nice lyrical thing. Go get, you know, it's got a nice message. You go get yours. Nice, fast, open. Sounds a lot like um, Live Wire by Motley Crue, um, or at least to me it does with the chugging, chugging uh, guitar. And it's got a shredding guitar lead, which is a little bit different for them. You know what I mean? It's more of like, I know that, I know that they are going for more of a heavy metal. This is how heavy metal sounds now. So they have more of a shredding guitar with Mark St. John. Kiss was always a band that would kind of adapt to whatever was going on around them after their first half a dozen records or so, where they would be, there would be uh, you know, a significant part of, of, of whatever they were doing at that time would be sort of you know, chameleon-like. And this album reflects kind of the, um, the beginnings of, of when metal started to get heavier and in particular faster. And so what you have here, you have this little window in time where you know Iron Maiden is ascending to the top of the heap, Judas Priest has ascended mm. to the top of the heap, both of whom who did fast galloping mm. songs. Metallica is the hot new band, but what you haven't had happen yet is Motley Crue haven't gone the theater of pain glam route yet. Um, Guns N' Roses are a year away or two years away from even being a band at this point. Bon Jovi are, um, haven't really turned into the Bon Jovi that would sell 10 million records yet. And so they, you know, this is, um, you know, this is one of the, um, I thought this is one of their better experiments. Um, I really, really like, um, I like the song. Um, it's, you know, your, um, you know, the, the really good Paul Stanley positive affirmation fighting song lyrics. And yeah, it was just, it was, a, it was a really good album over, opener. Yeah, I think it definitely sounds competitive with the kind of energy that was coming across from Judas Priest records like Screaming for Vengeance and Iron Maiden at the time. Um, you know, if I had a problem with the song, I think that um, the, whatever you want to call it, the bridge um, gets a little bit vague. Um, you know, I, I think what he's trying to say is that, you know, this is no time for dreaming, this is time for doing. But when he gets to saying the words praying and scheming, he's not qualifying them as in don't pray or scheme. And it seems like scheming is actually something that one has to do, but it has such a negative connotation that, you know, it, I, I don't know what he's trying to say, but I feel like there's a better way for him to express it to make himself more clear. Yeah. Okay. Sorry to interrupt. I would have to agree with that. That's what I'm finding in a lot of his books. I will get to it and get all you can take, but there is definitely sort of a way that he um, doesn't bring home the lyrical content the way I feel like he should, but you know, it's still one of my favorite songs in the album. Sorry. I didn't mean to interrupt. Good, Mike, if you're up. Sure. I was just going to say that uh, it's definitely, I agree with uh, Andrew. Uh, it's, it's definitely competitive with, with um, you know, things like other bands like Iron Maiden, you know, with the chugging uh, rhythms and stuff. 
Um, and I think too that the the verses are definitely uh, the verses and choruses are the strongest parts of the song. The bridge, as much as I love those chord changes, which are badass. It's... And that's that's great. It, it's it's so of the era. But I definitely agree that lyrically it doesn't really um, you know carry its weight, if you will. Um, and interesting too, this is a uh, Paul Stanley Desmond Child co-write. Yes. So you know, you wonder, you know, how much of that was uh, Desmond's influence. I think, uh, I believe the song started with a riff, and then Eric Carr supposedly, from what I've read, came up with the "out of the cold into the fire" notion. Mm. Uh, but however, he didn't receive a, a songwriting credit for that. A lot of uh, but, fire image in this album. <laughs> yes, lots of you know, fire yeah. and, and lots of animals in cages, and the, <laughs> the idea that uh, modern society is becoming. Um, kind of a burden and and causing us to repress our our animalistic sexual natures yeah i'll buy that completely and something interesting too to point out to to follow up on this point uh this is an album where i think it's the first appearance on a kiss album where they use a thing called uh, a, a guitar device known as the rockman uh that was developed by tom Scholz from boston um, I think the Rockman came out in the Canadian tour '83, and it was, you know, a very heavily compressed uh, guitar sound that was used on, on a lot of albums starting around this time. Um, but it also, looking back, it also could sound a little dated in a way, um, you know, because sort of of the period as well. But it's interesting too because here's a case where you know a device is released by Tom Scholz from Boston, but then a lot of other bands sort of beat him to the punch in using the device on recordings. Mm -hmm. uh, so the first time that you know the Boston guitar sound in terms of Rockman's uh, made a debut was 87's uh, third stage. So here's the situation where, you know, the sound sort of, you know, was released in advance of, you know, the creator's um, uh, musical contributions later. In, in oh, really? So, so they were using the Rockman before Tom Schultz put it on a Boston album? Yeah, yeah, because the uh, the 78, not to get into a tangent, but the 78 uh, Boston album, Don't Look Back, didn't have a Rockman on it. In between the break between that album and third stage, Tom Scholz um, was working, you know, fighting with the record company, but he also was working with developing his line of guitar products. So uh, I think ZZ Top and Kiss and maybe you know, so, some other bands, some other pop songs featured uh, the Rockman. Uh, but also in 87, uh, the Def Leppard album, uh, hysteria uh, heavily used the, uh, the the Rockman sound as well. Yeah, um, I, I did read. So there's something about Wikipedia about how they tried to radically EQ it uh, to you know change the sound. But I actually think that the, for Mark St. John's style of playing, it's really appropriate because you almost need to heavily compress that just because he's playing so many notes. You know, to get those notes to all cut through evenly, you know, you need yeah. a fair amount of compression. For sure, and especially when doing finger tap stuff and dive bombs. I mean, it's definitely the type of guitar sound that, you know, not to, to make light of Mark's playing, but if you put any average guitar player playing through a Rockman, they'll probably sound pretty good because the sound kind of you know, works for you. It'll, it'll, it'll bolster your, your sound. You can sort of do anything and, and play some notes and it'll sound good just because of all that compression and all that EQ that uh, it, it, it provides. Now, here's the real question, because I first discovered Rockman's when I was coming over to your place and heard you play through them. <laughs> do you still have your Rockman? Do you ever break it out for anything? I have it plugged in today. And, you know, it sounds like Boston. It sounds like... <laughs> I 
right? And we yep. all know that sound. Yeah, but I still have the rock modules uh, as well that I use um, for the live shows that you and I play together, Dave. Yeah, I've got I've got all that stuff. So you know, I'm I'm a, I'm a hoarder. I'm a collector. However you want to define it. <laughs> nice. Well, although um, in in Kisses and ZZ Tops and everyone else who used its defense, um, Tom Schultz, you know, took eight years to make third stage. So yeah. you know. He probably needed the money from some rock man's just to, um, to pay to pay for the lawsuit against his record label that he lost, and also the <laughs> fact that he's, uh, you know, it took him. It, it, you know, he's one of those guys that took seven years to make a record and just didn't really mm -hmm. sweat it. So, yeah, one of those torturous stories. And then I guess somebody killed themselves because of him. So you know, really, yeah, the lead singer Brad Delp I thought took his life for. Uh, various reasons so yeah it's a whole other story so song number two the big hit single off of animalize that arguably drove it to multi-platinum status um the biggest selling non-makeup album that was actually in the same league sales wise as the as their 70s uh records heavens on fire it's, it's a classic yeah, I mean, I like the opening, uh, the great catchy little riff, great catchy. I mean, it's it's perfect. Um, you know, it's it's a it's a um, what am I trying to say? It's a perfect hit. You know what I mean? Although a couple of things that I discovered, the vamp um, right before they go into he feel my heat, the vamp sounds a lot like. I guess pre-chorus is the word I would use. Sounds a lot like um, the vamp and lick it up. Um, and the, uh, but I also like the solo. There's a nice little melodic solo in it. That's not as shreddy as the rest of the stuff on the album. Um, or at least in parts, there's really nothing wrong with it. I mean, I, I really like, I mean, even that opening that he does with the, the, you know, I'm not going to try and attempt to do it here, but the, his vocal exercises at the beginning are, are really clever. You know what I mean? It's like stepping out and trying something new. So I kind of definite credit for that too. And, um, yeah, and I yeah, I, I like it a lot. I mean, I I don't think I did at the time because I was like, oh, this is Kiss just sounding pop, and you know, I mean, this is what is this? This is '84. Yeah, yeah, this is right when I think I'm starting to move away. No, that's not true. I, I think I, I liked it. I I think later when I heard it, um, I was like, oh, this is like poppy Kiss, but it really isn't. It's actually a pretty good song. I mean, all around, it's it's clever. Lyrics are kind of neat, interesting take on the, you know, the idea of it, you know, heavens on fire is a great phrase, you know what I mean, no matter how you try and interpret it. Um, right. And heaven, heaven, presumably being his body in this case, right? Or <laughs> his, her body. That's how I always took it. No, 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 no. I don't think so. I think he's talking mm -hmm. about his body. It, it calls to mind the, the Paul Stanley quote, um, you need to treat your body like a temple, especially if you expect people to worship it, right? <laughs> so he, his body is heaven and it is sexually aroused. All right, okay, all right. Yes. Okay, actually, I've been there for a sec. Um, about that yell that opens it up, um, as it turns out, I was doing my digging this week and found an interview with a guy named Mitch Weissman, whose name is gonna start coming up in pretty frequently in about two more songs. But it turned out, you know, uh, I never knew this. Um, that yell at the beginning of Heaven's on Fire was him just doing a vocal warm-up uh, because he was having trouble with the takes, so he just did a few more of them. And it turns out someone started rolling tape uh, on the vocals 
while he was doing like right as he started that yell, Paul didn't know the tape was running and he finished up right as the song actually comes in. And it turned out to be this absolutely perfect thing that they actually said afterwards, you know what, no one's ever gonna believe that that was just an ad lib. And so they heard it in the playback room and Paul said, you know, do you want me to, you guys want me to do that again? And the entire room looked at him and said, no, we're good. That's perfect. Yeah, it was it. Uh, one of those great rock and roll happy accidents that uh, made yeah. it tape and, and, you know, sort of defines the song actually. Yeah. yeah. It's, it's kind of like Ronnie Van Zant's Turn It Up on uh, Sweet Home Alabama. Right. Yeah. It's another thing, you know, Paul said about this song. Um, there was an interview with him where they said, you know, you guys write really simple, straight ahead songs and you always say less is more. But was there ever a song that you did where you were afraid that it was too simple? It was too straight ahead and maybe you needed to make it a little bit more complex. And the song that he cited was Heaven's on Fire. He thought that maybe there wasn't enough to it in terms of what it was. And, you know, uh, I can see why he would say that, but I think it's actually, um, like John was saying, kind of a perfect pop hard rock song. Uh, structurally very similar to Lick It Up. You know, I mean, it's definitely, there's a template for their singles that they are modeling and they, they are repeating that template here. Um, funny story, I remember the first time I heard this song because I was, uh, I was really down on WDVE. And because I, I just, you know, God, they just played the same songs again and again. And I, and I turned it on just to like prove to myself how terrible they were. And this song came on and I was like, see, that's, I'm like, actually, okay. I like this song. Actually, it's really good. Oh shit, this is Kiss, isn't it? God damn it, you know. <laughs> yeah, so that's the first time I heard Heaven's on Fire. Um, one lyric that I always stuck in my mind that I wonder about is uh, the, the line, paint the sky with desire, which is interesting for a number of reasons, right? I mean, that's not a common phrase. Uh, and I, I almost feel like it's, it may be one of those instances where there was a dirtier version of that lyric that was just being a place saver, you know, at the risk of getting a little, <clears throat> you know, grotesque here. It could have been something like paint your face with desire, which, you know, being Kiss's history wearing makeup could have been interesting. But, you know, the fact that Paul Stanley went on to become a painter also kind of makes that that line interesting as well. I, don't know, I always thought of it as very sort of like psychedelic Hendrix-esque. Yeah. Like, you know, because there's, I, I think that like for me, the the, uh, the subtle thing that, you know, Hendrix has the song Up From The Sky. And yeah. I always felt that it was just, um, you know, it's, you know, it's an unusual line for a Kiss song. It's a really evocative line. And so, you know, it was, well, it was either Paul Stanley or Desmond Child that came up with, that, but um, I don't know. I, I think it, it feels like something. I wonder, you know, th there could have been, you know, like an NC 17 version of the lyric, but I don't know. Um, I think whatever they were going with, when somebody, when they fa finally figured on this one, they were like, you know what, we're not, I don't think we're going to do any better. This works. Because, um, you know, it's not going to get any, it's not going to get anybody into trouble on the radio. You know, they can play that. And, you know, this is one where they knew it was the single. So they had to err on the side of, um, what is going to be okay. 
Yeah, although the most risque it gets is arguably eat it like a piece of cake. Yeah. yeah. True that. Mike, your thoughts? Um, for me, I, I think it's definitely, I can see why they chose this as a single. It's probably the most, um, you know, accessible song for people that, you know, if they're going to be introduced to Kiss, which in this case, if you're being introduced to Kiss because they, they recently taken off the makeup, you know, then, you know, so be it. But um, I mean, it's like, there's a, a definite simplicity to it. Um, and, and in a way, we were, we're all Pittsburgh guys. The riffs themselves totally remind me of uh, Norman Nardini's T-Bird. Mm-hmm. You got the kind of... Uh-huh. I mean, you know, and granted, you know, Norman didn't open for Kiss at this time. He was only on the uh, the Alive tour or the Dress to Kill tour. But nonetheless, that always sort of, you know, stayed with me. Um, but I, I think, you know, I could see where Desmond's influence might have been um, on those lines that we were questioning, you know, I paint this guy with desire. Um, not the kind of things that other bands of the era, let's say, you know, your rats or, you know, would, you know, would be writing. Um, and not the kind of lyric that I would expect an audience to pick up on if you're, you're looking for the sort of anthem or the, you know, the hit to, to sing along to in, in a live show. Everybody paint the sky. <laughs> right. Yeah. Woo! All right. Great. But, you know, hey, um, and I think also just from a guitar standpoint, um, I've seen footage of Paul playing this at various tours, and I think this is one of the songs where he might have played this in an open G tuning, which we discussed as a, as a very Rolling Stones uh, guitar tuning, uh, which makes it easier to play those sort of, you know, bar chord riffs, you know, with one finger rather than having to, to actually have to use two fingers or three even. So, um, yeah, you know, good song, great vocal uh, on Paul's part. Um, and I think as also from a guitar and tuning standpoint, I think basically the rest, the, this entire record is uh, tuned a half step down. Whereas the previous record, Lick It Up, was uh, an in 440 tuning, which means, you know, they can take a little easier when it comes to having to do vocal takes uh, for this type of thing. Um, but just a point, too, on the production, because uh, we mentioned that uh, Michael James Jackson was involved in this. Um, he had, uh, I think, he, he had produced the drum tracks for this yes, record. Yes, he did yeah. the drums. And I can hear the difference, too. I mean, the vocals... They sound pretty good on this song, but they mm-hmm. are definitely not as strongly recorded and mixed, you know, as say "Lick It Up." Yeah, I think um, you know. Again, Mitch Weissman met said much, much later, after you know, years later, um, you know, at, you know, they'd laid down the drums at this point. Uh, you know, Gene was kind of a little less involved at this point, and had very much become a Paul Stanley project. Apparently, the the actual quote from Michael James Jackson when he walked away or, or however it was that he no longer was working on it. His quote was, I don't need to be on this record. Ah, okay. Uh, yeah. Okay. So I guess probably, I think at some point he realized some sometime once the drums were laid down that essentially he, I'm thinking what that says to me is that he was pretty much being Paul Stanley's engineer at that point. Well, you can really hear it in terms of the bass, too. I mean, the mm-hmm. bass is kind of tucked underneath the guitars yeah, uh, in a lot of ways, um, you know, and, and it's not nearly as clear as it is on Lick It Up or Creatures. Mm-hmm. I have zero comments about the bass playing on this album, except for the fact <laughs> that it's someone else besides Gene. You know what I mean? That's There's not a single moment in any of these songs where I'm like, oh, that's kind of neat. You know what I mean? It's very, very... Buried in plain. Yeah. 
Um, we should probably mention a little bit too about the video because I think it was pretty instrumental to the success of this song. Um, it is of its time. <laughs> it is, um, but you know, the, the videos they had done before from this era, Lick It Up and All Hell's Breaking Loose, the, the women look like they are straight out of central casting 101, the same firm that, you know, where they hired the girls for looks that kill and rock you like a hurricane and all this kind of stuff. They don't look like women walking down the street, right? And at least the, the cutaways that they've filmed to some, that they show to some sort of rock and roll hotel party may be just as staged as, you know, the video vixens in the previous videos, but they at least give the impression that maybe this is some kind of voyeuristic thing happening and that these girls are, you know, more your average women off the street, albeit fairly good looking ones. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's, it, you know, it's, I mean, I'm guessing, you know, it, it, it does, I mean, you know, the, uh, it does cast, it, it, I guess it's, you know, it's, it's like, you know, the hotel room setting, but yeah, I think it was, they dressed, they dressed the actresses more casually, but I think it was probably like they, they, they were certainly recruiting from the same pool of uh, video stars, of rock video stars that a lot of other bands were, I think at the time, but yeah, it's true that it was, um, some of them actually had street clothes for on for part of the video. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying by any means it was cinema verite, but, yeah. uh, you know, there's also a nice bit of humor where, you know, Eric is suddenly behind Paul singing the uh, harmony. And, you know, I, I think they look better as a band in this in this video with, the, you know, the costumes are a little bit more together in terms of unity and a theme. Theme, yeah. Yeah. And too, on, on video, I mean, the, the biggest image to me that always that always stuck with me was the image of Paul's hands on fire at the beginning of the video. I mean, that's mm -hmm. <laughs> and Paul jumping through the hoop at the end. There you go, which that's is on fire. Which I wondered about. Do you think he really did that? Because if you watch at the very end of the video, it's like his body seems to fade before the hoop does. I've heard. Uh, I watched the video and it looks like it's a stand-in, but. Well, I think it's him, but I think that they composited two shots. I don't think he literally jumped through. Oh, I know. Okay, yeah, uh, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I don't think he goes through. Hmm. Well, not everything is what it seems. <laughs> hey, that's Hollywood, right? So, yeah. Although okay. he did the the um, acrobatic moves in um, the Folgers commercial, he could have done it. I don't know. Never mind. <laughs> I don't think that was him in the Folgers. Commercial. Yes, it was. <laughs> I don't care what you say it is. <laughs> You're really obsessed with that commercial, John. I don't know. <laughs> well, it's just so damn weird. It doesn't make any sense. It doesn't even make me want to drink the coffee. Carry on. Sorry. Okay. <laughs> burn, bitch, burn. One of the infamous Gene song titles. You know, in general, I would say that Gene is pretty creatively checked out on this album. And you can definitely tell with this song it's kind of an unimaginative sea of misogynistic cliches, but there are a few lines here and there that, you know, are relatively clever. I mean, the idea, well, it's an act of thrust is a pun on an act of trust, okay? Um, 
your body's condemned figures don't lie i freaking okay. love that lyric that's and, a good I mean, line it's right up against put a log in your fireplace which is totally ri ridiculous yeah while the heels are stacked against you as a play on the odds are stacked against you you know high heels i get it um <laughs> you know if the rest of the song had lyrics that were as clever as that it might be enough to save this song but it, it they're few and far between i don't know i think like i mean these lyrics are obnoxious by any standard, let alone the pre-Tipper Gore 80s heavy metal standard. Mm. I mean, these, like, I mean the, the test I like to use is what I like to call the Oprah test, which is like there's a really famous episode of Oprah in the early 90s when Ice-T was on there. And he, um, he and, and Ice played along and he took, and you know, he, he, he went along with this, but Oprah, like with a straight face, read him lyrics read him some of his own lyrics back to him from i think the iceberg and like it's one thing to like have ice wrapping these on a record when you have oprah winfrey reading these to you in like the the school teacher voice with like an entire studio audience just shooting daggers at you it's just like okay this is like the kid who got busted like writing the dirty notes in class and the teacher read it you know that kind of thing mm. and so in terms of like i always like to say how would this lyric do if how would this lyric pass the Oprah test and how ridiculous would you look if you were sitting there and Oprah was reading lyric, reading these lyrics back to you? And this is one of the songs that you can hold up as a shining example of someone that like, if like, if, you, if this got subjected to the Oprah test, people would be yelling and screaming and throwing things at you. <laughs> you know, it's funny. There are lyrics that appear on the lyric sheet that are actually not in the song. Right. There's a uh, burn, bitch, burn, ain't no deposit, no return. I picture Paul in the studio, like when it came time to mix this song, just like hitting the mute button and goes, you know, just going, oh, Jesus, what does that even mean? Mute, print, next, you know. Like, yeah. Yeah. Well, there you are. Yeah. Nutty. Yeah. It's, it's out. But, you know, funny too, this is the third, third song on the record where we're mentioning um, Fire. Yes. You know, and literally the first song is I've had enough, you know, out of the fire, or out of the cold into the fire. And here we have, you know, out of the frying pan into the fire. So is it like a concept record? Where are we going with this? Um, but, you know, but either way, you know, I, I just um, was going to point something out about this song. And where are my notes here? Sorry, kids. Um, oh, um, apparently they had played um, more than half of this record on uh, the live tour. Uh, oh, really? In this case, though, uh, songs like this one, they played the first night, and that was the last time they played the song on the tour. So it only made it through <laughs> through one, one show. Yeah, um, I've had enough. Was another one that only got a couple plays, unfortunately. Yeah, I've had enough, and then uh, "Get All You Can Take" was also played on the first night of the tour, and that was the last time it was played. Okay, um, another one more note about this song. Um, I don't know if you guys remember a comic strip called Mother Goose and Grimm. Uh, mm -hmm. But there was a, a, a strip that appeared about this time where there was a, a, a doll called Teddy Ruxpin. It was like a big teddy bear and you could, it would talk to you, but you could also put in normal cassette tapes. Right. And so they're in the comic strip. Um, teddy Ruxpin is, is uh, starts singing, you know, and I don't know what lines they use from the song. Cause I can't imagine in the family strip, they would have used the chorus, but they might've used, let me put my log into your fireplace. 
And the final panel is, I just love putting kiss tapes into my Teddy Ruxpin, you know? So there, there was a kind of cultural impact, which reminds me, this is off on another tangent, but I should have mentioned in the Lick It Up episode, there was a ad for, I think it was a Commodore 64 computer or something of that ilk, right around the Lick It Up period that was drawn by Berkeley Breathed or Breathed, who did Bloom County of Gene Simmons. And the conceit of the ad was, we've studied this and Gene Simmons did not grow up with a personal computer. So moms, dads, unless you want your son to grow up to being a you know, fire breathing, blood spitting, heavy metal bassist, you should buy them this computer. Yeah, Dave, I remember that comic strip. As a matter of fact, I was going through some boxes and stuff today. And uh, in addition to finding my ticket stub from the Animalized Tour at the Civic Arena in 1985, March 26th, and also a full set of guitar picks from that show. Wow. Um, wow. That I didn't get. I purchased uh, the next day in high school. I think uh, Ken Chalosky had them. Uh, he was close to the stage. And I said, hey, how much do you want for those picks? And he's like, 10 bucks. I'm like, cool. 10 bucks, here you go, sold. So I didn't get them at the show, but I got them after the show. But nonetheless, in that folder of other stuff that I had that I didn't break out, I had that comic strip. I saved it. You know, you know, cool. I remember just seeing it. So I think it was on my, the, the, the bedroom door um, at my mom's house. But anyhow. You got to uh, take for, a picture of that and send it to me because it's really hard to find online. You got it. I'll do that later. I'll do that later for sure. Was, were, all, were all of us at that Animalized show? Yeah, I think so. I believe so, yeah. Because I know... Um, I mean, I was like, there was a group of about nine of us that went. And I know it doesn't include any of you, uh, of the four of you, because I know Mike, I think you went down and waited for tickets to get that floor seat because we were on the side. Um, no, I, I was I on the side too. I think I bought mine at uh, either Kaufman's or one of those, you know, outlets. Um, but I, I knew friends that were down on the floor that, you know, the guys that gave me, you know, the picks. Uh, I was, I was sort of, I guess, be stage right, um, you know, about halfway back in the house. Yeah, maybe, it's, maybe I watched the encore with you because I snuck down onto the floor at the very end of the show. Yeah, as a matter of fact, I think Andrew, you and I saw each other, and I think we were walking in. I remember seeing a Wasp was the opening act, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I, I was up on. I, I was on stage. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny because at the time people were saying like, oh, this is really a co-headlining tour, and <laughs> you know, Wasp is probably you know selling more tickets than Kisses, but. You know, much like when you saw Kiss uh, and Accept open for them, you know, Wasp was a good band, but nobody walked away from that show thinking that they should have been the headliner. No, I mean, it was, it was I mean, definitely an above average support band. And yeah, you know, they, had, they had presence and they were, because they were selling, I think they were able to have a little more, uh, a little more production than a lot of opening acts might get at the time. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, the first Wasp album is a classic. And so, you know, you know, if they essentially, I mean, that they essentially played the album. Yeah. Um, and so that makes for a really good 40 minutes of music. But yeah. it was um, but yeah, just, so above average, but it wasn't at the point where, um, you know, they were, they were, you know, it, th this was not like Motley Crue, Shout at the Devil, um, like kind of upstaging Bark at the Moon, Ozzy. You know, right. It wasn't that level. I remember they did a, a very long extended audience participation thing where Blackie was throwing posters out to the audience. Yep, and I remember it, that. It really seemed like something that might have played better in the clubs than an arena. 
because well, think, yeah, they were through the posters because they used to throw raw meat in the club days. Yeah, and uh, and and promoters were like, not in my venue. Not down uh, well, here in the Civic Arena, you and Skies. That's right. <laughs> That's a health code violation, there, buddy. <laughs> then also, remember Black? Uh, it was at least half of Wasp had like the leggings that had no butt on them. So ah uh, uh, yes, the mm. assless chaps. <laughs> right. Was it, uh, I think was it Chris Holmes and Blackie both were kind of like um, every time they turned around, you got a pretty good look at at like uh, you know late thirties guys, butts. <laughs> so, yeah. But hey, it, you know, um, they had, it, you know, I mean, Wasp is still active now and it was the beginning of their high watermark. So. Absolutely. You know, the thing about the fact that they were able to headline an arena that's so impressive is if you think about it, they couldn't tour at all in the States on, on master the elder. And they essentially yeah. within the course of two albums re invented their whole career from the ground up and, and right. from not being able to tour to playing theaters to headlining arenas a second time. Um, I think this album sold as well as it did because they had that momentum from Creatures and Lick It Up. You know, much, yeah. much like Trash is Alice Cooper's best-selling album and No More Tears is Ozzy's best-selling album. It's not necessarily because the album's are their best albums. It's because they had a good single and it was the right time and right place and they had momentum to for those albums to sell. Yeah, it was a combination of, you know, you, you had the, the hardcore fan base that will, that will see them every time. Uh, and then you had, you know, the, um, the, the kind of more casual fans that they had won back through a couple of really strong records and, or, or at least harder records. And then you had um, also, you know, the newer fans that have been looped in through MTV and the video. And so, you know, those three things will add up to 9,000 people in Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah. Mm. And this was the show in which we saw the blowjob queen. Right, the infamous Pittsburgh groupie. Those of us who stayed in Pittsburgh for college uh, saw quite a bit. Um, <laughs> In my when no 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 when I was when I was going around and I was playing gigs or seeing bands uh, through my uh, early twenties, uh, particularly at the upstage, I would see her. But at this point, she was now a good I guess like almost not not a decade, but six or seven years older. But she was around town all the time, and I wanted to be like, hey, you're the lady who you know, yeah. but. Yeah, the lady for life. who came up to us and showed us 12 backstage passes for Animal Eyes and told us, you know how I got these? And we said, no. And she said, I gave a blowjob to a different member of the road crew for each one. <laughs> no, she literally made the symbol of blowjob or whatever. And we're like, what, we're 13, 14 years old? Yeah. Yeah. Rock and yeah. Roll, man. Which was not the last time I saw her either because flash forward when Vinnie Vincent Invasion comes out and Vinnie and Dana Strum do an autograph session at the National Record Mart because they're opening for Alice Cooper on the Constrictor Tour. She showed up in a um, completely see-through top with no bra and Vinnie and Dana Strum take off her top in the National Record Mart and start each cupping one breast with each hand and taking pictures with her. And then 
literally sucking on her breasts in the photos too. It was quite a thing, let me tell you. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> good times, good times. And they say that the kids today are something. Never mind. I don't know. But yeah, yeah. She, I want to see her yeah. like in various shows for like bands coming in. You know what I mean? Like the Damned. Even sometimes when the Cynics would play. Um, mm -hmm. Just very odd bands. Not all metal bands. You know what I mean? There mm -hmm. were punk bands too and things like that. Um, she was like out all the time and I kept wanting to like go up and be like, I know you, but I bet you me and 400 other dudes know her. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so... I've never, I've never even heard of her until now. Never heard, she's like infamous. She was like all around town. Every show we went to, when we, Iron Maiden, Motley Crue, she was there. Okay, well, I guess at this point, I had no reason to be backstage, and so I wouldn't have known that. But also, I spent most of high school at boarding school, and, and uh, so I'm thinking that... Oh, yeah. So, yeah, I, I, somehow, somehow I, I, I did not ever drift into the orbit, uh, into her orbit. Um, Okay, but we love her. She was a part of our childhood. Thank you very much, wherever you are. So, <laughs> <laughs> moving on. To, to sort of bring us back into the album, uh, let's uh, reinforce some of the other points you made. Um, you know, Dave, you're talking about how you know they were touring uh, to you know playing theaters uh, and, and not even touring the U.S. on albums like Unmasked and The Elder. Um, you know, here's you know a situation where can you imagine being in a band where you're you're mega in the '70s, like you're the biggest thing happening, and then you've got this down downward path, and then all of a sudden you're coming back and playing arenas again. They must have felt so good to be able to do that, you know, and to have that sort of success again. Because, you know, if you any handful of bands that are around the time, you know, have I mean mentioned names like Foghat or whoever, you know, they've changed members, they've done things, haven't released half as many records as Kiss has, and have long since been forgotten that they've been playing you know rib fest and those sort of things whereas kiss at this point still just were fighting and fighting and fighting and trying to re reclaim their, their stake and, and they did so you know hats off to those guys for you know fighting through and making that happen absolutely so yeah get all you can take um i think like uh, like the, the thing that um i can lead off with with this one is that i think that the guitar solo on this song is Mark St. John's Finest Hour. I absolutely love this solo. I think it does, it goes all over the shop absolutely perfectly and then arrives back. Um, I think it's, you know, like, you know, this was Mark St. John's one record uh, with Kiss before he, you know, he got this, you know, this illness that had, that forced him out of the band. But I think of all the guitar solos on the record, this is the very, very clear standout and I think it also, the, um, the chorus is also very, very powerful. But I think this is one of those also classic, you know, Paul Stanley affirmation songs. Um, but I think, um, you know, after the, you know, the chorus is great, but I think for me, um, this is Mark St. John's finest moment. Yeah, the, yeah, yeah. The, 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 there's a line in there that he says, you gotta sing along, gotta keep humming which is freaking great. I just love that song, uh, that line in the song. But the, and it is a positive affirmation song, but one of the interesting things that I came across is, does he want us to join the race or not to join the race? Because if you okay. look at the lyrics, it seems to be saying back and forth, like one, it's like, think of the dues you're paying. Well, you generally pay your dues in 
the race that you're playing or the game that you're playing. You know what I mean? But then in other lines, he's like, they're never going to let you into the race. You know what I mean? They're never going to let you in to do what you got to do. Here's my, my take on, on this song lyrically. And I just kind of had this revelation today. Okay. This is really in some ways a song about Paul Stanley's alienation from the from the rest from other people okay um you know the the phrase get all you can take is obviously a pun on take all you can get right um and it's very much uh, of the 80s the whole uh, wall street gordon gecko greed is good the ethos of too much is never enough um right but okay so the first verse is young, naive Paul Stanley, who doesn't know anything about life, okay? And he feels alienated from everybody because he's never left his neighborhood, you know, lower middle-class Brooklyn or whatever, and doesn't understand how to access, you know, all of the thrills and exciting adventures that life has to offer, okay? But the second verse is, after they kiss has become successful, he's just as alienated from the people as he felt before he had experienced anything or known anything. But now it's because they're all stuck in the rat race following the rules. And mm -hmm. he can see from his perspective that the game is rigged, right? Mm -hmm. That it's a right. race of fools, that there is that, you know, and he, all he can feel is contempt for the repressed values of conservative middle America and anyone that still believes in joining that rat race. Yeah. Well, I think uh, part of this, I mean, this, this was also, uh, this was a co-write with Mitch Weissman. Again, like his name's gonna be coming up pretty regularly for the rest of the record now, but mm -hmm. out, Mitch Weissman was one of the, uh, he, he was, he co, he, he plays rhythm guitar on a lot of the record, although he's not credited. He co-wrote three songs on the record. This was one of them. And, and it turns out he was a guy that goes back to the 70s with Gene. He played on Gene's solo record. He was actually a member of the original version of Beatlemania, the Beatles cover band. He was the, the Paul McCartney one. But it turned out that Mitch, uh, Mitch was wrote like pretty much all of the lyrics for the song. And they actually started with 12 verses and narrowed it down to what we have in the song. And apparently he was just being really, He apparently the, the final version was actually during a phone call where he and Paul were going back and forth over what lines to keep or what verses to keep. And eventually um, Paul was like, you know, I, I think Mitch said it with one of the lines to, to Paul, uh, what about this one or this one? And eventually Paul was like, what fucking difference does it make? And Mitch was like, actually, that's a really good line. Let's use that. And that's how it ended up on the story. Really? Because was, yeah, he actually like, all got so exasperated that he was just like, all of a sudden, he says, you know, Paul's second ad lib moment that makes the record on four songs. They said that they were going to replace that and then they couldn't think of anything that was as good. So it's, it becomes the only Kiss song to use the word fucking. Is it, is, yeah, is it the only F-bomb in the entire Kiss catalog? Yeah, and it's and it's technically not included on the lyrics. No, they left, they left it off the lyrics. It's not on there. Well, I mean, that was the smart move in 1984. That's funny that you said it because I've heard I heard I read one guy say that it was because they wanted to appear more heavy. You know what I mean? Uh, as a band, that they wanted to lose their "we're a band for kids" vibe. 
and that putting in that effing right there helped. I'm sure that was probably a, a factor, a consideration. They were trying to yeah. appeal, yeah, be edgy to some extent. But I can't think of a word that works better. <laughs> Shut the front yeah. door. Yeah. <laughs> you know, musically, it's similar in some ways to keep me coming, that ascending yep. um, mm -hmm. hammer on, ha hammer off riff. Yeah, for sure. For sure. And Mike, can I get your take on the on the on the solo? Can you can you dissect this for us? Yeah, it's it's interesting for a, a couple of reasons. One is it, it goes through uh, several key changes. You know, it's not just something where like oh, we're playing an E and just you know dive bomb and finger tap and you know do what you got to do and play as fast as, as many notes as you possibly can. There's each section has a theme to it as it changes key, which is, which is great because I think one of my problems I shouldn't say it's a problem, but in terms of me being a guitar, a, a guitar player, I've probably learned the least about playing guitar from this record than I have other Kiss records. I can learn a lot more from the obviously the 70s you know, era stuff, the Vinnie Vincent era stuff, the Bruce Kulick stuff, but this stuff I could never really sink my teeth into just because it was so, it was, I, I wanna say it was beyond me, but it was so, there was so much going on on this record guitar wise that I just really thought, well, you know, you know they've gone into a whole different direction. But nonetheless, you're absolutely right, Andrew, I think, in terms of Mark's contribute contributions to this record, in terms of guitar solos, this is a, a, a shining moment for sure. He goes through; he, he does more like signature licks instead of just blazing through the, these 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 licks and riffs that you know are technically impressive. But you know, to the average listener, what does that mean? You know, it, oh, he's playing fast; so he must be impressive. He's sort you know, if you want to say he's playing with feel or you know some sort of forethought, you know, by all means, this is the, the song to, to visit um, in terms of his contributions as a lead guitar player. Yeah, you know, Paul Stanley talks about working with Mark St. John, and he said at one point, uh, Paul had suggested to him he plays kind of a Jimmy Page-ish lick in the solo, and Mark St. John said, well, why should I do that? I can play way faster. And Paul said, uh-oh, you know, we've, we've got a problem, which is probably why, although they didn't talk about it at the time, uh, there are two songs on this album in which they called in future Kiss guitar player Bruce mm -hmm. Kulik. This is a potpourri of guitar players. Well, I mean, you know, what a situation to be in. I was going to say, like, you know, here it is, you know, they've, they've lost Ace. Okay, so they get Vinny. Vinny comes in. Vinny lasts, you know, we'll say like a record and a half. And then Vinny's out. they got to get another guy in. You know, and Paul calls Grover Jackson, who was obviously head of Jackson Guitars at the time. He's looking for a hotshot guitar player. They get, they get Mark, and he plays. And to, to my knowledge, I don't think Mark has done any recordings prior to Kiss, right? He was a guitar teacher in California, yeah. Um, you know, he did do a couple of sh two and a half shows, I think, or, or, or so something like that on the Animalized tour before he came down with this arthritic condition in his, in his hands that prevented him from playing. Yeah, um, I read that he had played uh, two full shows and one partial show, and then that was it. Yeah. yeah. I, I don't know what he did, but like, I know he was a guitar teacher, but I don't know what bands he was in in Southern California before Kiss. And, you know, I don't, I don't think I've ever seen like, oh yeah, here's, Here's Mark St. John's pre-Kiss band from this, you know, like from, you know, Orange County or from, you know, from the Sunset Strip or whatever. I can't ever remember seeing or hearing anything. No, it, it, as a matter of fact, guys, um, uh, the bass player in the Blessings uh, right now, uh, one of the other groups that I'm in, uh, Terry Love, he had, um, he had seen White Tiger, which was Mark St. John's band uh, after Kiss. You know, I guess, you know, he knows people that knew Mark and, you know, Mark was interested in, talking to Terry's girlfriend or whatever, you know, Mark was being a little, you know, invasive in that way. But um, interesting to think that here's a, here's a guy that 
was basically exited from KISS because he's got, you know, this physical, you know, hardship or condition. And then, you know, within like a year or so later, he's got an album out, he's doing shows, he's playing the country club in LA and doing his thing again. So, you know, what really is the story behind his exit? Was it just because he wasn't working as a guitar player? Or was it the fact that he couldn't play guitar? You know, will we ever really know the truth? Well, I've heard uh, several things. Um, you know, I've heard him criticized for the two and a half shows that he did play. He was having trouble um, matching the way Gene and Paul played behind the beat. You know, mm -hmm. in other words, letting the drums drive everything and having the guitars react and always be behind that. Um, and then I've heard two different things about his performances with the, with the band. Uh, one was a criticism that, you know, he wasn't used to playing arenas at that level and he, you know, lacked the showmanship. But then I've also heard an interview with a friend of him that supposedly that wasn't true at all. He was a great performer. He was running all over the stage and Gene and Paul didn't appreciate being upstage that way. <laughs> so who knows? As far yeah. as I know, there is no footage of any of those shows. So it's hard to say. I think there is some audio um, stuff, but it's not not high quality. Yeah, and apparently one of the three shows that, that Mark played with Kiss, I believe uh, Bruce Kulik had played the first third of the show and then Mark joined them on Under the Gun and you know part of the set later. Uh, but I, this first time I read this was apparently all five of the guys, including Mark and Bruce, about at the end of the show. So here's a situation oh, wow. where you know, all five guys are. I think I remember hearing that. I guess yeah. you know, probably what, what, you know, if Mark had stuck around, they probably would have had to do like the Ozzy Osbourne rule for him, which was like, ever seen like Ozzy Osbourne, if you look at those early 80s videos with Randy Rhodes and Rudy Sarzo, um, you know, like you'll see that like, Rudy Sarzo is kind of like in front of the drum riser on stage, right? If you look carefully, there's black, there, there's there's gaffer tape, like taped to the stage in a box shape. And essentially his orders were, you do not set foot outside that box. Like every, the entire rest of the stage is for Ozzy and for Randy. And if you step outside that box, you're going to be fired. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I think that Gene and Paul, no disrespect to Ozzy, but, you know, they are much more accomplished, exciting performers that don't have True. to worry yeah. about being upstage mm -hmm. nearly as much as perhaps. Yeah. And that, that, that may have been, and I'm thinking this may have been also been on the Osborne camp, this may have been a management decision as opposed to a uh, creative decision. For sure. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, I, like, you got to work at it to be like running around to the point where even Paul Stanley's like, dude, you got to chill. <laughs> Making me tired. <laughs> <laughs> My last point on the song, Dave, and this bolsters your uh, point about the verses. Um, when you get to the pre-choruses, particularly the first pre-chorus, Paul's basically saying, if you got to have a chance, you take it, you know, stand your ground, you got to bend the rules to make it. That's definitely from the perspective of some of this, you know, sort of climbing the ladder of success, you know. But then later in, in the second pre-chorus, um, you know, where he's getting into like, you know, uh, you know, think of all the dues you're paying. So true, I'm telling you, wise up, can't you hear me saying? He, that's sort of like an elder you know, point of view saying, hey, now I know where I am as, as a human being and as a songwriter and musician performer, this is what I see, you know? So it's, it, that's a great point that you make about how the verses are from two perspectives. Yeah, and I, I actually just noticed that today for the first time, like listening to oh. it. Um, so moving on to one of Andrew's favorite songs, because I know this, because he told me, Yes, I think this Lonely is the Hunter. Yes. Uh, this is a Soul Gene Simmons co-write. Um, I think this is one of the great dark horses of the Kiss catalog from any era. Um, I love the backing track. 
But the other thing that, that for me really makes this stand out is that this is one of my favorite Simmons lyrics because this isn't typical Gene Simmons conquest and domination lyric. This is a Gene Simmons push and pull lyric where he's not necessarily in control 100% of the time. And I think the very, very key event here is that in 1983, he'd met Shannon Tweed, who he's now still married mm. to. And so I think meeting her um, who, you know, not exactly a shrinking violet, someone who stood up to him and yeah. someone who he very much, you know, very fell in love with and has stayed there. Um, if she's not the inspiration for this song. I don't know who is, or at least for much of it, but I think it's, um, from, from both a song, a song standpoint and a lyrical standpoint, I think it's, um, it's one of my favorites. Yeah. Um, I, I think from, I mean, I have a lot to say about this one too. It's, um, I think Gene and Paul very often do a yin and yang kind of uh, songwriting thing. And I think this is the, the yin to uh, Paul's yang with, of Thrills in the Night, right? Where the song is focusing on a sexually voracious female who is uh, forced to live a life of repression day to day and is out of control and beyond Gene's control. Right. Um, and so, so, you know, lines like, um, she was dealt a full deck, but she likes to live alone. The implication being she's not crazy, but she doesn't want to live with any one man or be tied down. She wants to keep her options open. You know, that's a fairly interesting perspective from Jean. I, I always, I always read that as this is a woman who has her own power. Yes. Yes. Um, and that's, and that in and of itself, like he's intoxicated. I mean, that, that's something that draws him to her. So, um, but I've always, I've always liked that line for that reason, because it does, it does go against a lot of the sort of, you know, oh, uh, the chauvinist tropes from the era. Uh, um, and so I just, yeah. Right. And in this song, Jean is not the hunter. I would assume, I would assume she is the hunter. Right. I mean, if there's a problem with the song lyrically, it's, you know, the chorus says lonely is the hunter. You're my one and only and lonely is the hunter. But, but by the way, he's describing it. She is the hunter and he is under no illusion that he is her one and only. He is one of many. Hmm. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I, I got to think about that one. I don't know. Um, other lyrics that are interesting, you know, this is the first time Gene has brought forth the relationship to, between girls and money. Girls love money like bees to honey. Bees don't go to honey, bees make honey. Okay, but it's a common cliche. Um, okay. The thing that Kiss does by taking the piss about everything that people are saying about them and sexualizing it, she's a legendary figure. This was around the time they would have been started to be referred to as quote unquote legendary figures. Um, mm. You know, the whole animalized theme um, kept me in a cage. She's a torture chamber um, is very much, you know, uh, reminiscent of when Gene goes on to produce the Easy O album and they do the single House of a Thousand Pleasures, the woman mm. as, as a metaphor for you know, a place that gives extreme, um, extreme feelings and extreme experience. <laughs> um, 
Yeah, you know, I, I think you're right about about Gene. I mean, in what others Kiss song does he refer to himself as a fool who has let his heart rule himself and lost the battle in a relationship with a woman? I think there's a, there's a certain vulnerability here that you don't see in a lot of Gene songs. Right. No, and I think this is a case too where you know this is an atypical Gene Simmons song, and you know it doesn't get recognized for that. You know, it's definitely not like you know again meet me in a ladies' room. It's you know again pick any number of you know bands that were out at the time, whether it be Sunset Strip or whatever. You know, they weren't writing these kind of lyrics. Um, you know, it's it's, it's something that uh, they don't really get enough credit for um, as artists. Uh, but I agree. I think if there's you know. There are standout tracks, you know, if, if there are, if there are any on this record from Gene, this is definitely the the the, the you know the track uh, to me that, that stands out as the most catchy. Um, and also, too, this is we mentioned too that um, Bruce Kulick had done some lead guitar work on this record, and I believe this is one of the songs that Bruce contributed the uh, the lead guitar. Uh, that is correct. Yes. Yeah, he was on this one and Murder on High Heels. Yeah. Well, that, okay, yeah. that makes sense because they both have sort of this wonky riff. Late, you know, the the song is sort of built around a i i call it wonky but sort of like a, a one riff that's a little bit slower not you know not specifically 80s metal type riff you know what i mean it's almost like a led zeppelin kind of riff yeah and i love the fact that it's it, it's when you listen to the guitar riffs especially in the verse and the way that those you know weave with the drums it, it almost seems like the beat itself sort of turns around in a way right. with the way the, the way the guitars are interacting with mm -hmm. the drums and you know Again, I've said before that if you throw Johnny Musician in a band and says, "Oh, you know, Kiss Kiss music is simple. Any, anybody could play that." Okay, well, come in and join us on jamming on "Lonely as a Hunter" and watch them struggle. I mean, it's not it's not the typical type of guitar playing or bass playing that that you, that you would see in in bands of that era. Or you know, but again, it, it just serves as you know how creative and how unique they are as songwriters. Um, you know, I don't think a lot of bands sound like them. You know, when it comes to approaching riffs that way. And there's an instrumental break in this song that Gene goes on to reuse, uh, I believe, on the Black and Blue album Nasty Nasty. That one. Yeah. Hey, you know, if it works. Yeah. All right, so we turn the record over. We do, or we flip the tape. Flip the tape, and we come up with Under the Gun, which was one of the songs that was played on the tour, and I think is Paul's attempt to rewrite uh, re Livewire and in a much less successful way. Um, you know, for a guy who's such a great singer, I think this song is almost anti-melodic in in some ways i mean it's there are parts of this song where I, I i sort of feel start to feel like why are they still shouting at me you know it's like it's, it's it becomes a little grating on the nerves um one thing i do like is the line show me something strange i'll make it stranger you know, Paul's way of saying, you know, to a woman sexually, don't try to out weird me, you know. <laughs> I'm thinking, though, that could also be Desmond Child. Because, you know, this is the same, like, you know, like this, the, you know, Desmond co-wrote, you know, Heaven's on Fire with Paint the Sky. So show me something strange, I'll make it stranger. I feel like that, 
might be coming out of the same brain. Yeah, okay, I'll buy that. But it's a great line. I like that line um, a lot, actually. That's one of my favorites. That's one of my favorites in the album. And it's got the opening lead has sort of is definite, you know, almost Iron Maiden-esque. You know, they're trying to get that double E sound down together. Um, you know what I mean? Right at the beginning, it seems like. Um, yeah. But I, I, I like it, actually. It's one of my favorite. And I, I love Eric Carr screaming fire over and over again in the back. That's it's actually kind of cool. But I understand what you mean. It does sound like a little bit, um, yeah, why are you still yelling at me? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, Leave me alone. Well, I think this was one. It's also, I think this is one where, I mean, Eric has a co-write on this song. It's his one on the record. And so I think, you know, um, it's also one of the ones where there's a lot, there's a lot of double bass on it, I think. They would come into this one out of the guitar solo on the tour. And so I think this, I was always surprised that this song got more of a focus than I've had enough because of the two thrashers on the yeah. record. I actually prefer, I mean, they're both really good, but, but if I could only choose one, it would have been I had enough. But I think that because Eric had the co-write on this one, I have a funny feeling he was probably pushing hard for the live in, for the live side on that because mm. You know, he had he had a share in it, you know, uh, but it's also, you know, he gets a little bit of publishing to come from it. So he has all the right reasons to ask for it. Um, but I think, you know, it's it makes for a good lead off of side two. Agreed. The lyrics aren't as pointed in um, this one. In I've Had Enough, the lyrics are very like, this is where the song's going. Whereas in Under the Gun, I'm a little confused about what it's about. You know what I mean? I mean yeah. So. Yeah. I, I, I think, yeah, it's a little more all over the shop, but the other thing too is that um, the, the one thing in this song that I would absolutely flag is in the lyrics, which is that, you know, let's um, let's do the, hi let's hit the highway doing 69. You know, there's right. no speed level right. coming from. That does not, fit the, it does not fit the rest of the song. You could have come up with a lot of different things. And not only that, um, let's hit the highway doing 69. It is like, it doesn't, it, it doesn't have the right effect. I think it's it like, you know, it's supposed to maybe sound like sexy, but it just sounds like, for me, this sounds like, this isn't smart. Okay, for not only are you gonna wreck the car if you try this, <laughs> there are gonna be some EMTs amusing anecdote for the rest of their life. And on top of that, you, you could have done, if you really, really want to put these two lines in, let's go with like, let's hit the highway doing 75, 85 it's about to be 1985 or even correct the mistake from detroit from from <laughs> square and do 95 but 69 is just kind of like a cheap shot for all the wrong reasons and for me that's the one thing where i'm just like you know when i hear it but aside from that um the song nails it it's a little cringy it's definitely paul trying to imitate that sort of throwaway line that david lee roth does so well but yeah, my initial mm. reaction was, yeah, I know what he means, but 69 miles an hour is not that fast. And, you know, I get the double meaning. Okay. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I think, like, given, the, given that it was like three months before 1985, I mean, they, I thought they, let's hit the highway doing 85. You know, they, they could have, that would have been a nice, like, of the time reference. They could have really run with that. But, you know, again, they didn't, I was in ninth grade at the time and they didn't call me for creative input. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but again, a, a great riff uh, guitar-wise. I mean, it's you know, it's badass. And um, also, we mentioned uh, several times they revisited riffs like uh, the stuff in uh, "Keep Me Coming." Um, you know, the breakdown in the song is basically you know, "Keep Me Coming," but just instead of being in the key of E, it's in the key of A. But it works. But again, it stands as an example too of I mentioned before. Paul has a sort of spongy 
guitar sound that works and it, it, he only sounds that way like to try to mimic that you know it, it's weird it, it, it you know it's like a, a natural sort of behind the beat loose feel that he has and it comes across in that breakdown um on this tune you know but you know simultaneously um i think around the time or a few months after this record came out they released um animalized live uncensored on vhs and i think it was it, it about like an, an hour version of it on mtv uh that year and i remember this is one of the songs that was featured during that show and you know as a longtime Kiss fan, sure, we all would have loved to have heard, you know, songs like Firehouse or, you know, you know, insert, you know, song title. Uh, but to me, this this song stood out as a performance uh, song in, in that set. Like, you know, I wouldn't say it was my favorite song of the show, but in terms of the way it came across on TV, um, it was a solid presentation. And I was interested in it. Yeah, Animalized Live Uncensored in a weird sort of way kind of became a live three for a while because it mm -hmm. was largely had songs from Creatures Lick It Up and Animalize. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, and it's funny, I remember, <laughs> I think at the time it was uh, airing on MTV, I had, um, it was my dad and my stepmother at the time, uh, you know, this is the days of VCRs and you know, VHS tape. I had them record the, you know, set the timer and record it. I couldn't watch it at the time, but I could watch it later. And I sort of had them watch part of it um, once, just to make sure that the tape would record it. And I had the thing, I could take it home and watch it on my own. Um, as soon as I started playing the thing, you know, this is of course, you know, Kiss Unmasked. And they said, oh, no wonder I had the makeup on. They're really not attractive guys, you know? But, you know, as attractive as they may be in their own right, this show, Animalized Live and Censor, really does not serve them in any, any way in terms of image, because I think it was filmed on, video right it wasn't filmed actually actually on film it was a really just an odd format and it wasn't really flattering in any way to the show it made the stage look small it made their faces look you know like they had more pores than you know you know a bar so it's shot on video it looks kind of flat it's not a it's not the best production i saw it recently i forget where but even even you know what i mean it's definitely not the best production values so there was a different concept this that was going to be the Thrills in the Night video that they started filming where it was a um, not exclusively a live performance video, but they were all going to have roles that they played. It was going to be kind of a story video. And well, yeah, were they going to dress Bruce up as the girl because he was the new guy? <laughs> I thought that yeah. was, well, <laughs> was supposed to be about like... There were like three, uh, what's it called? Uh, pimps, right? Wasn't one of them going to be a pimp or something? I mean, um, I don't, I know one of them was going to be like a businessman. Like they tied Paul Stanley's hair back and there's some photos from what they did shoot where he's like wearing a suit and his hair's like oh. all tucked back. And, um, and I think like they were, they all had straight roles in, in the concept video, kind of like this is their straight day-to-day -day life. And then, you know, in the night they have their thrills. But I think it sort of exacerbated the fact that as soon as you tie their hair back, they start to look like slightly older gentlemen who could just be anybody walking down the street and a lot less like rock stars. And I think that the concept was... Um, was doomed to fail from the beginning because I don't think they really thought it through. So then in a last ditch effort to put the song out as a single, they shot a new video in which they combined footage of the band shot on film live with footage of the band shot on video right, live. Yeah. Which, 
there is nothing more cheesy, as bad as it is that everything is shot on video on Exposed, cutting back and forth between film and video in a video yeah. is, is the height of cheesiness. I think it's why they've actually never released that video. In terms of you know, discussing the video and analyze Live Uncensored, um, you know, we mentioned that uh, Mark St. John had played you know, a you know, total of three, if you want to call it, two and a half shows on the tour. Uh, apparently the day before that the show was recorded in uh, Detroit, which became Analyze Live Uncensored, uh, the day before was the day that they sent Mark St. John home. And then Bruce was made the official lead guitar player on December 8th, which was the date that they filmed the show at Cobalt Hall in Detroit. Uh, but also from a fan perspective, I mean, you know, think about this, you know, this is the day of the MTV concert. I remember seeing stuff like ZZ Top and Ozzy and thinking, man, I wish Kiss would do an MTV concert. You know, here was, you know, they did that. And, you know, it was, at the time I didn't have MTV, but I had friends that did and I would ask them to record it and try to, you know, watch it. Um, yeah, but again, exciting that that was a format that they embraced and they would do that. And this is what we got, you know, video quality, you know, footage quality, you know, be it what it is. Uh, but you know, to Andrew's point too about the uh, Thrills in the Night video, I just found that apparently a few days later um, in Ohio, they recorded uh, audience shots for Thrills in the Night. Um, and it was just like a video shoot and they only played like five or six songs um, that day. Uh, but also uh, coincidentally that day where they filmed uh, the footage for the Thrills in the Night video was the day um, that Gene's uh, theatrical film um, uh, debut, Runaway, um, hmm. appeared. So okay. interesting, you know, coincidences that, that occur, you know, among those dates. The album was recorded um, a half step down. The Animalized Tour was played in 440. So anybody that plays an instrument or sings, you know, does vocals, you know, when you're singing a song, it's written a half step low, and you have to do that now in 440, which is a semitone higher. For anybody other than Paul Stanley, that presents a challenge, you know. So here it is, they're playing all these classic Kiss songs, especially songs from this album that recorded a half step down, but in 440. I mean, that just presents its own challenges, and they never seem to, to waver um, in terms of their ability to execute those songs um, in that tuning. Hmm. I didn't know that. Okay, so the song Thrills in the Night itself, um, woman forced to live a double life, repress and hide her animalistic, voracious sexual appetite. Society forces her to behave this way and the price that she pays is that nobody knows the real her, which is kind of poignant and sad and insightful and atypical of a Kiss song. Yeah, that about sums it up. I got nothing else to say. It, it actually, weirdly enough, reminded me of stuff from The Elder. Uh, when, you know, the, the the tempo of it, some of the lyrics sort of remind me a little bit of like it, I, I wouldn't say it would fit on The Elder. I mean, maybe on the extended version of The Elder where they have a female, um, you know, uh, female, uh, you know, another, another person in it. But definitely, um, you know, it, it's, I guess, he, did he get the lyric from a 50s novel i heard that gene got that or am i thinking of something else never mind carry on i just think it's 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 a fine song there's nothing that really sticks out to me about it there's a little bit in terms of the tempo it sounds a little bit like something from the elder but that's about it yeah i always figure this is like one where um i mean you know kiss obviously never did this but I always think that like you, you essentially have somebody it's a song about somebody who has to basically sort of like hide who they are and I always figured like um maybe you're like um you're, uh, Dave you, uh, do your friends in, in that in, in your your band Gacy DC do they do Kiss covers no just ACDC 
Okay, because I'm thinking this would be interesting if they rewrite a few of the lyrics and the protagonist was about a guy who was closeted. That's a good point. <laughs> because that's what a lot, I mean, like, because this is, you know, th this is, you know, that's essentially what you've got here. You have somebody who um, is closeted. Yeah. Um, and now this happens to be, a, this, this appears to be a heterosexual woman who is able to repress what she needs to repress to do her day job without, you know, getting discovered. My first take on it was, is there's a lot of Kiss songs about people making it through their work day to then party later. You know what I mean? Or to be who they really are after their nine to five. You know, they have the makeup, in Kiss's case, have the makeup off and then put the makeup on and become them true, their true selves. Um, so it feels like there's actually a strong history of this, although this seems to be one of the first ones with a female protagonist. And it's also playing into the concept of animalized. You know, she goes hunting with a body in heat yeah. and lonely is the hunter, you know, calling back to the, the, the hunt um, of sexual conquest for females. Um, you know, Paul, when he was asked about this album, he said that uh, he felt like in modern society, people were being forced to live more like computers than human beings and that we needed to get back in touch with our animal nature and that, you know, making music, pressing a bunch of buttons is no fun. Yeah, yeah, if you only knew what was going on now. I mean, I guess he does know it's going on. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it is really just pushing buttons at this point, it feels like. You know, one of the things that uh, stands out to me on this song is this is a co-write between Paul and uh, John Bovar, who had also played in uh, The Plasmatics, right? Yes, and he also, he plays bass on this and he plays bass on a couple other songs on the album too. But my reason for bringing that up is, you know, these lyrics seem to me more of like a, a Desmond Chow type of lyric, you know, it'd be something you would hear on, you know, Slippery When Wet from Bon Jovi, you know, uh, Living on a Prayer, you know, that kind of stuff. It, to me, you know, it, it it shows how, you know, if, if John had any, you know, contribution to the lyrics, you know, how that, you know, is something that should be recognized in a way. But at the same time, you know, as, as well as the song sort of tells a story, and as interesting as that may, may be for, you know, the three or four minutes that you're listening to the record, I just don't know how well a song like that would translate to a live performance. You know, when you've got such classic songs to play or other songs on the record that might serve, you know, the purpose of an audience, you know, participating in, in the song and they're taking interest in it. You know, to me, it's, it's almost like an artistic sort of, you know, standpoint. Like, I'm, I'm going to play this song anyways. I think it's a good song. And, you know, it's, to me, it's no wonder that, you know, it didn't last any, any longer than, you know, the Animalized Tour. It's a great song, but in terms of live presentation, is it really that interesting? Debatable. I see what you're saying. By the way, Gene, um, I'm not sure how you pronounce his last name, Bouvier? Beauvoir. Beauvoir. Okay, so he played bass on Get All You Can Take, Under the Gun, and Thrills in the Night. But yeah, I, I agree. It's not a song that I'm like desperate to see them shake the dust off of and play live for sure. Yeah. Yeah. It's not, it would be, it almost feels like it might be a better ballad or, you know, something else. I don't know. Or a better video. You know what I mean? If they really took the extreme to the, you know what I mean? And, and really did a great, uh, you know, great job on the video. It might be pretty interesting, but it, it stands out in terms of the fact that it has a female protagonist, but it doesn't stand out because they've kind of done it before. So moving on then to um, the last two songs, which are both Gene songs, and I would argue are kind of both in some ways continuing the tradition of what I would call film noir metal, 
right? That he kind of does on Naked City and Unmasked. And uh, as Paul Stanley says, you know, Gene was probably watching a lot of films with guys like Humphrey Bogart and uh, James Cagney and, and dark detective tales where, you know, actors that had been dead longer than he'd been alive. <laughs> the first of which is called While the City Sleeps. Yeah, I think this, um, th there is one thing we, we're, there are two songs left on the record, both of which are Gene vocals. And the other interesting thing here is that you've got, both of these are co-writes with Mitch Weissman, the guy who was in Beatlemania. Um, so you have back-to-back -back rights and it, it appears, I th I'm thinking that Mitch probably was the lyric guy on this. And, but I think you've also got something unusual in that Mitch had co-writes with both Paul and with Gene on the same record. And I don't think there are too many people that bridged that gap. Mm -mm. And, and also, um, he was also a contributor on Gene's solo record, one of about, you know, 500 people that played on it. Um, <laughs> but it's, um, this appears to be, I think, and I think like, you know, David, you're absolutely onto something with like the darker vibe of, of these, you know, this song and the last one. And I think you were looking right at Mr. Weissman for his contributions on that one. I like it because it reminds me of, um, you know, the approach that Gene took on songs like Naked City from Unmasked. Yeah. You know, it, it's sort of talking about the underworld and how, you know, the city is a different place at night and, you know, yes. maybe nothing good, you know, after midnight, you know, happens, you know, or anything that happens after midnight isn't, isn't a good thing. You know, it's debatable, but it, 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 it paints a picture um, and he, he tells a good story with it. So, you know, in a way, if he was sort of, if you want to call it, you know, not really, you know, attached to this record or, you know, filming movies at the time, I mean, it comes across as a well-written song and, 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 you know, the lyrics are, are great. You know, they tell a story. I mean, that's, that's what, that's what a song's supposed to do. Whether or not it's as good as, you know, what you did on the record previous, you know, might be debatable at this point, but still it's a good song. It's, it's catchy. You know, I, 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 it's my favorite song on the album lyrically, but I think that musically it's not as strong as some of the lyrics are. You know, what goes on behind closed doors, private wounds, open sores. You're your own worst enemy and cheap thrills bring you to your knees. It's thumbs down for someone you know, and it's easy come, easy go while the city sleeps. I mean, that's, that's, that's great stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it's very noirish. It's very uh, Chandler-esque, um, Mickey Spillane-ish. Good adjectives. I like those. Uh, yeah, it's good. It's good. I just wish it was more. I mean, other standout lyrics. While the city sleeps, it's all there in black and white. Through the eye of a needle, gotta thread your life. Um, live for today and don't ask why. Um, you know, I, it's hard for me to hear the words, they love you when you're hot and leave you when you're cold, and not think that there's some some anger there from Gene about how Kiss was tossed aside as soon as their popularity began to ebb, especially in the United States. I think, yeah, I think there's definitely something there. Um, and also too, um, in terms of the actual music bed of this song, another thing that, um, that, that Mitch Weissman copped to much, much later that essentially this is a very, very thinly disguised rewrite of a song called Wishing Well by... Hmm, interesting. I have to check that out. Um, also great, better run for your life, take your troubles to the night while the city sleeps. As far as, you know, um, 
when you're getting to the back end of, of, of a record. And um, this one actually like, you know, this, this holds up. Yeah, usually this is the place for the song that's no good. Or the filler. Or the experimental jam session. <laughs> Jazz Odyssey. Right, yeah, exactly. <laughs> One thing we haven't, we haven't touched upon um, is the album cover itself. Um, and also you know, the, the photo on the back of the, of the album. Um, I'm, I think it was Dennis uh, Walsh who was the, uh, the, 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 the designer for the album. I guess he had said that he had you know, sort of, you know, second thoughts after the album's released, the album cover should have been a little more colorful and nothing is dark. Uh, but I've also read stories too, that, you know, you look at the picture on the back of the record and it looks like, you know, just a photo of the band. Well, apparently, you know, this is such a comped photo. Like they took, you know, the arm from one picture and put it on Paul's, it's the photo itself. There's just so much work that apparently went into it, um, but it doesn't really come across that way. I mean, they put a lot of work into cutting pieces from various shots and putting the shot together. And if that's what we got, really that's you know it's really it's not a flattering picture of the band it's a terrible um, cover like as, as an art teacher i'm gonna go on i mean i was gonna actually wait till the end of the our discussion here but it's a terrible album cover it there's no um both sides of it you know what i mean and, and particularly since they're talking about animalized and then they use so many you know i don't i doubt this was this was pre a lot of digital tricks so it's mostly done with a um uh, an exacto knife to build those characters, but it definitely looks bizarre on the back. You know what I mean? I've never really liked that photo on the back. And then the front cover is, um, it's, it's like something, it's something like a sixth grade student would come up with when I said, find the most, you know, lines and shapes you can in your house right now, go. You know what I mean? And it's, it, it doesn't seem particularly well thought out. There could have been so much more to it. Now, my understanding is their costumes at this time, did they have like actual animal print added to their costumes at some point? Yeah, yeah. On this tour, they wore kind of um, stuff that was kind of faux leopard, you know, prints mm. and things like that. Um, it's the second Kiss album cover since The Elder not to feature the band on the cover. Um, and I think okay. you know, the last time they did that. I, I do not like the album at all. I mean, the album cover, I mean. <laughs> I do have to point out, though, that that is an awful lot of hair piled up on the back cover. Uh, <laughs> that is yeah. really impressive. Like, the amount of gravity that is being defied um, and the amount of Aquanet maximum hold that was poured into the, the first three dudes, um, it remains impressive. Let me ask you this, though, because the photo of Gene, and there's some photos on the inside of the album on the lyric sleeve, too. Boy, Gene looks, his face looks completely different. Like his bone structure looks completely different than in any other photos I've ever seen him in. And he doesn't look anything like that in like the Heavens on Fire video or Live Uncensored. So like, it's weird. I know this is pre-Photoshop, but... I feel like they did something, you know, somehow manipulated his face in these pictures to make him look like he's got these really high cheekbones. It's entirely possible. And also, this yeah. is also a time when he had cut his hair short for the film roles, so he's wearing a wig throughout this era. Yeah. And that could have also been something that, uh, um, and there, he had several of them, some were a little more effective than others. Um, and so I think, um, and you're right. So I think like um, it's entirely possible that there was some sort of manipulation of his album photos. 
They could have done it with lighting. You know what I mean? How much how much shadow is on his face? You know that kind of stuff. There's lots of ways to tweak yeah. that. Well, it, it's much like uh, the way Vinnie Vincent appears on the cover of Lick It Up. I mean, he never looked that way in in, in photos previous or after. Yeah, know? and that's supposedly they're wearing their street clothes and they did a photo session and whatever they're wearing that day and, and appeared you know arrived at the photo shoot. So you know, believe it or not. Um, but interesting point about the, the album title, I remember, um, you know, word of mouth, you know, was was key in terms of knowing what was going to be coming from your favorite artist. I remember a friend of mine in, in uh, well, at this point, it would have been grade school, uh, coming up to me saying, oh, have you heard the, you know, the title of the new Kiss album? I said, no, you know, what is it? And they said, Analyze. And they thought it was Animal E-Y-E-S, like Animal Eyes. Ah. You know, oh. like, yeah, uh -huh. I thought, well, that, that's interesting. And then when I got the record, I was like... Oh, oh, okay. I analyze. I get it. I see. All right. Oh, boys, I misled, you know, I talked to that guy, but, um, you know, either way. <laughs> oh, man. So final song on the album, Murder in High Heels. Great um, title. Yeah. And I think Gene got this one off watching like a, you know, 40s a film noir film thing, noir I think. Thing. Yeah. Um, Bruce Kulik on lead guitar musically kind of rips off. I think it's Gene's attempt to write an Aerosmith type of song. Yeah, again, it's got sort of a wonky riff like Lonely is the Hunter. Yeah, it's like Last Child, actually, from Aerosmith. You're right. Or uh, Sweet Emotion, actually, the two that did da 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 you know. Well, it's interesting to bring that up too, uh, Dave. Is um, you know, there's a song that the Jeff Beck group uh, released. I think it's on the their '71 album. Um, it was called Rice Pudding. And it's 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 a song that Aerosmith basically said that you know when we were writing Sweet Emotion, we were thinking of this song, you know, Rice Pudding uh, ah. by the Jeff Beck group. Okay. But then you mentioned Aerosmith too, um, and Dave, you pointed this out to me years ago. In that riff in in this song, it's. Aerosmith completely used that for Love and Elevator on, on the Pump album that came out in 88 or 89. It's almost note for note. I mean, there's a definite similarity uh, in that riff. And, you know, whether it's an influence on, on, you know, from Kiss to Aerosmith or vice versa, I don't know. But um, it's something that Dave, you'd point out to me years ago. And I just wanted to mention that uh, you've got a keen ear when it comes to recognizing those, those types of things. You know, lyrically, again, we have the reference, she's a cat been caged too long. Now she's breaking out. The, the, the line that kind of sticks in my mind is that I question is better run for cover, babe. She's going to make her move, you know, um, because like it seems like a filler line that he just never uh, bothered to replace. Who is the babe that he's addressing here? Is he saying like better run for cover girls like the other women or is he writing from the perspective of a lesbian? I mean, I don't, you know. Good question. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Um, second Kiss song on the album to mention the relationship between girls and money. She's a get rich bitch. Um, second reference to his own sweat. There was on Lonely of the Hunt is the Hunter. Sweat flew off my face. Now here there's a pool of sweat and, you know, ick. Um, <laughs> well, I guess this is, yeah, same singer, but this is a Weissman lyric and not a Sims lyric. But yeah, I guess it's like, Okay, so I guess there's fire and sweat are the themes of the record, I suppose. Yep, yep. And and how we live our lives as animals in cages. Yes. Damn it, we gotta escape this, we gotta break free from those cages, you know? <laughs> it's, a, it's a great little hop, skip and jump riff that's, you know, starts the song. Um, and it's, you know, it's, it's it, 
it moves back, back and forth between its sections very nicely. And it does, um, again, for a song that finishes off the record, um, actually does so. I think it's, um, you know, it's not Lonely as the Hunter. It's not the best Gene song on the record, but it's enough that I think that it, um, the second side, and the second side of the record does not match the first one. That's, um, but it at least holds its own. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, the argument for Vinnie Vincent being such a great influence on Kiss is this record where they had Mark St. John, Bruce Kulick, Desmond Child, Mitch Weissman, and, and Gene Bouvier. Beauvoir. How do you pronounce the last name? Beauvoir. Um, all working to fulfill essentially his role on the album. And they came up with an album that, while it's good overall, doesn't match Lick It Up. No, agreed. I mean, I I have a personal, I have a personal soft spot for this record. For me, um, I like, and I I agree with David one hundred percent. You know, song for song, this doesn't match Lick It Up by any real objective standard. Um, you know, there's a, it. But what I do love about this is that this is just Paul Stanley just being like angry and on fire and just this is an absolute Paul Stanley statement album. And it is just, um, you know, it's not a long record. It's, it's over and under 40 minutes. And, you know, while Gene, you know, has his presence on it, this is, this is a Paul Stanley album uh, by any, you know, even though, you know, it says Kiss on there, you know, this is, Paul's very much in charge and he is just, like got his foot to the floor, um, just being maximum 80s Paul Stanley on that. And it's a powerful album. And I think just for sheer, for Paul being a sheer force of nature to a certain extent, I think it makes it makes up for maybe not having song for song, being able to you know go you know toe to toe with Lick It Up, but it does remain, um, it's still my favorite non-makeup years record, even though Objectively speaking, I can't call it the best one. Subjectively, it remains my favorite. Well, it's all about, you know, where you were in your life at that time, right, too, in, in some sense. I mean, the golden age of comics is when you're 12 to 14 years old, no right. matter what's out at that time. Um, Alan Schwartzberg played some drum overdubs on this record. Anybody have any insight in their research as to what that was? I don't. Yeah, nobody seems to know anything about that. Any bit of research I did, they were like, why did he do it? And they don't know why. I think it was either in um, I've Had Enough or Under the Gun that he did uh, drum overdubs on some of the fills. Um, I, okay. I forget where I read that, but those, those two seem to um, stand out in terms of uh, what he contributed to, to the record in terms of fills and, and recording. Funny story about our friend Vinnie Vincent, who has now left the band and started the Vinnie Vincent Invasion. Um, so I somehow got on the Chrysalis mailing list um, when the, the Invasion first came out. And they mailed me a pink vinyl um, edition that had, I think, three songs from the upcoming album on it. And it was, you know, large, it was like a 78 in size. Okay, but um, it was unclear to me what speed that was meant to be played at because it only had three songs on it, like two two on one and one on the other. Okay. Oh, I love the vinyl era. This is amazing. So we we played the album first at at 
40, 33. 33. And we thought, right. oh my God, this is right. the heaviest sounding shit right. I have ever heard in my yeah. life. And then I think it was you, John, said, maybe it's supposed to be played at 45. And we put right. it and we played it at 45. And I and we said, no, there's no way. There's no way the singer is singing that high and he's right. playing that fast. He's kind of like a frigging clown. We couldn't figure it out. It was yeah, ridiculous. Like we thought, it, you know, neither way sounds right. So we had no idea what the right speed was to play this record. I just, oh, <laughs> man. Now I want to hear this on 33. <laughs> oh, I bet that's not, I bet that would be awesome. <laughs> oh, it's going to rock. <laughs> yeah. I'm telling you, man, it was heavy. <laughs> wow. No, I'm just thinking about this now. Yeah, that's, and I can see this is one where, because you're right, that is just, I mean, you know, that first Vinny album is just like on like 90 miles an hour on steroids the entire time. So I'm thinking actually now, like, I'm just, I'm trying to visualize or at least, you know, like I'm trying to figure out like what that would sound like. I'm thinking, yeah, I bet this sounds really good. And because Fleischman sings in such a high register, it would, yeah, wow, okay. If anyone finds a recording of this that they can send me like because some somebody managed to play that 45 and 33 send it to me i'd love to hear that oh man production wise you know after look it up you know this seems a bit more uh, of a washed out mix in a way um it doesn't seem as solid in, in your face as look it up or you know uh, you know which is kind of to me disappointing if you compare the two albums um but then again, too, with, you know, here's, you know, Mark St. John's, you know, contribution to the band. Like, I'm the lead guitar player for this this period, and, you know, he exited for whatever reason um, you choose to believe if you read interviews. But, um, my God, what a life like I had after. And his demise was so sad. I mean, the guy essentially, you know, was um, put in jail, I think, for, uh, he was busted for, you know, having some meth, you know, some drugs, whatever. And I guess he got into a, a dispute with... Uh, another inmate like either stole some crackers out of the guy's you know locker or whatever and he they, he got tagged as something that needed to be addressed and you know apparently he just got you know the living crap beat out of him to the point where i guess a family member came to see him and they didn't even recognize him when they visited him in jail um and i guess one of the reasons why he passed away is because i guess i guess he had been beaten so severely that uh, he had a hemorrhage uh, and that's you know one of the reasons that's what contributed him you know, to passing away i mean what a sad end to a career that would have been you know, one of the most promising things. You're going from guitar teacher in Orange County to being one of the biggest rock bands in the world. You play three shows and you're out and, and that's how it has to go. I mean, my goodness, you know, the things that not only Mark was going through at this time, but like what Kiss was going through. I mean, they were going through guitar players. I think at this point, when you bring Bruce into the band, they've gone through three guitar players at that point, right? I mean, it's a major change to make in a span of, you know, two or three years. I mean. My God, they, you know, the focus that they had and the drive that they had is so admirable in that way. It's funny, again, it's one of these Kiss albums that I really didn't think, this is, this is my golden age of Kiss because this is when I was delivering papers for money and then purchasing Kiss albums with my own money. So Lick It Up, uh, Animalize, Asylum, that period of time, that was when I was probably the most, that was when I was going to the shows. That was when I was buying the records. That's when I was wearing the t-shirts. So seventh grade to 10th grade or whatever was sort of my golden age of kiss. But then as I got older and sort of went into college and suddenly, you know, Asylum is the first time that I ever got pushback for being a kiss fan. Like normally no one ever gave me any crap about being a kiss fan, but going to Shadyside Academy and showing up 
at some whatever and having a kiss t-shirt on and suddenly everybody like sort of snickering and going, what? We're all, you know, we like metal. We're from Pittsburgh. <laughs> like, what are you talking about? So <laughs> I sort of maybe because of some of that or whatever, I know that this is also part of the time that I start to like turn my back against Kiss. Kiss in the 70s was cool, but 80s Kiss, you're not allowed to like because they're glam and they're, you know, they're um, uh, over the top and ridiculous and all that kind of stuff. Um, so this is this is a really interesting album for me because I really liked Kiss at this point. This is, you know, I remember seeing it at the arena um, and that kind of stuff. So it's... Um, it's it's an interesting album because I I really like it, but then listening to it now, it definitely doesn't hold up against say "Lick It Up" or "Creatures of the Night," or even some of the earlier stuff. But it still holds a place in my heart, being you know one that I delivered my newspapers, I bought this record, you know what I mean. So it's it's just interesting to come to it 35, 40 years later, and sort of pick it apart and realize that there are a lot of flaws with it, but it's still not a bad album, you know. So. That's my take on it. The album cover still sucks. <laughs> Mike? Um, my, my final two thoughts on it are, um, you know, one that, hey, you know, the album might not be as strong as other albums in their catalog uh, for whatever reason, but at least they were back in the game. They were touring again. They were playing major you know, venues and that gave us something to look forward to. I think they released the album, you know, what in September and then five or six months later, we got to see them live. Uh, thank goodness for that. But also, I had mentioned I had some memorabilia from the show, which were guitar picks and some other things. I haven't found them yet, but I, I do have some photos that somebody took from the show in Pittsburgh. Um, and some of those photos are also not only of Kiss, but they're also of Wasp, you know, was the opening act. But I have a question for you guys. There's a picture of Paul Stanley holding what was a Michael Jackson action figure. Oh, I remember that. And, and what was what was the story behind that? Okay, so he did a, a rap during this show okay, where he goes, we're going to be joined by a special guest tonight. And then he pulls out the Michael Jackson, Michael Jackson action figure. And he goes, look, everybody, it's Michael Jackson. He goes, what do you have to say for yourself, Michael? And, and, and then Paul in a faux Michael voice goes, I just want to say that kiss are a bad bunch of motherfuckers. You know? <laughs> Yeah, it was it was it was it was a set piece. I, I think they actually kept the action figure, you know, and went from city to city because they, they and then he was, I think Paul's line was like, "Okay, beat it," and he would like throw the action figure into the wings. Yes, I think um, that's how the routine ended. And I think, but it was okay. also I think part of it, like you know, I think during the same bit they would also like trash Duran Duran and the Thompson Twins, and so it was a rare, a really rare thing where. Like Kiss was actually talking trash on other bands by name, and so that. Yeah. Was, but uh, but yes, that is uh, the, the Michael Jackson action figure was a set piece for for Paul to make fun of Michael every night. Which, if you think about it, is a weird precursor to when they were on Mad TV and they fought an evil Michael Jackson to save the world. Huh. Yeah. Right. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but again, this is, you know, this is the beginning of the time where we're starting to sort of solidify our identities and we were KISS fans, we were metalheads, you know, so now I look back and I'm sort of like, boy, that's ridiculous, but at the time. 
who ironically kiss i mean duran duran were big kiss fans they actually cited kiss as a major influence into you know the type of band they wanted to be so and at that point duran duran was so outselling kiss about 10 to 1 so i don't think i i think they probably just laughed that up even if they did hear about it yeah so now i hated duran duran because all the hot girls that i was lusting after hated kiss and loved duran duran so you know that was just politics that's <laughs> <laughs> just politics <laughs> They're the ones that are missing out, though. You know, shame on them. Too bad for them. But yeah, I mean, but Animalize, I mean, it's one of the dark horses of the KISS catalog. I mean, it's, 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 uh, it punches above its weight because of Paul Stanley's just, it's one of his most forceful performances and one of, uh, I just, it, just one of my favorite albums that it just re reflects him like in absolute fighting mode the entire way through. And I think that part of it holds up even if, the album cover is, you know, maybe doesn't, and the videos don't quite look as good you know, 35 years later, but um, the bulk of the record still does. And so um, double thumbs up from me. We will return. The next album we'll be talking about will be Kiss Asylum. And we will also get an opportunity to talk about the Kiss Riots and the undisputed greatest Paul Stanley rap of all time. <laughs> Ever.